give any instructions either. You know, it's not like being a Habakkuk or Obadiah. I mean, where are those people? You know, where are they? Yeah, wonderful, wonderful praise. I noticed that the, the worship guide has blank on the back, and so there's no, no helps along there. I remember being in class and wanting to take notes and uh, kind of curious about what the outline would look like. So, and especially when it's on a piece of paper like this, I mean, I start writing big, might not have enough room. So there's going to be three main points to the sermon today, and then there's going to be about three points under each of those. So if you like to, you're a little OCD like me and want to know where you're going, that might, might help you there a little bit. Well, we begin at the beginning. It's a good place. The beginning's a good place to start. Um, in the beginning, um, I love the work of Nancy Piercy. She's written a couple of wonderful books. Uh, the first one that put her on the map, uh, Total Truth. Total Truth, and the introduction or the first chapter there, in that book she talks about a woman who has come into Planned Parenthood to discuss um, having an abortion. And it just so happens that the person with whom she went in to talk to was a Christian. And um, so they began the interview and did some process. Lady went out, came back in. Yes, indeed, you are pregnant. And uh, they began to talk about what she was to do. And, of course, she was there in that kind of a facility. She said, well, I've already decided what I wanted to do, and that's to have an abortion. And uh, the woman, I'll call her Susan, Susan was talking to her, and she said, well, you know, you really need to consider all of your options and began to try and lay out for her some of the options. But none of the options were because you and this baby have been made in the image of God. And through that conversation and then through some subsequent things that happened in Susan's life. Now, Susan's not the lady who came in. Susan's the lady who's working at the facility. And through conversations like that and other things that God was doing in her life, so reports Nancy Piercy, that she discovered how segmented that we can be in our lives. We can call ourselves Christians. We can go to church on Sunday. We can go to Bible study. But our, and this is Nancy Piercy's real thing, so I want to convey it to you, but our, my, she would say, Susan, worldview was not all that much different than anybody else's. It didn't take root in my life my perspective, my worldview about the way things are around me really wasn't any different than anybody who lived around me or who walked the same malls that I did or traveled the same highways. My life didn't really reflect a significant difference because I call myself a Christian. And she reports that it's because, pardon me, Going around, Casey's going to have to be quick on the switch. I didn't think so. Sorry about that. I'm not sick. It's just a little, little thing. But she, she just simply didn't have the same kind of worldview. It didn't sink way down in. 
Christ had not claimed a hold of her life the way it would later on? Well, that's because of her orientation. That's because of her perspective. And, um, and that perspective is a biblical perspective on exactly what the gospel is. That's why we're going through Aspire as a church, transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the subtitle of the book Aspire, transformed by the gospel. Not just in some academic way studying the gospel. Not in just some school, sit-down, classroom way looking at the Bible. But asking God to transform to make us first disciples so that we can make disciples. Where do you do that? Where do you learn about that? Where do you start? Well, you start with Christianity's founding documents. You want to know about America? Where do you start? Start with our founding documents. If you want to be a Christian, you want to understand what it means to be a Christian, you want to understand the gospel, where do you start? Now let me digress for just a moment. If you are a superior scholar in the, our midst you have PhDs and letters after your name and you've read through the Bible 1600 times and all the original languages and that sort of thing I hope that God speaks to your heart through the simplicity of what we're going to do over the next 15 months because what we're going to do is we're going to rewind and we're going to go back to what you might call Christianity 101 <clears throat> I'm reminded that um after the Green Bay Packers did such a poor job in one of their seasons, way, way back, and Vince Lombardi was their coach, that on the first day of spring training the following year, all the, all the professional athletes who had been through Pop Warner football and high school football and college football, and now they've finally made the pros, and they're all sitting around this locker room as accomplished football players, and Vince Lombardi walked out into the midst of that locker room, picked up a football, held it up, and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. That's my way of trying to illustrate we need to go back. This is a Bible. This Bible is divided basically into two parts, an Old Testament and a New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are 39 separate books. In the New Testament, there's 27. If I do the math right, that's 66. Some 40-some, about 44 different authors writing it. They wrote in basically three different languages. Most of the Old Testament is in Hebrew, but some of it is in Aramaic, just a little bit. Most of the New Testament is in Greek, but it also has a little bit of Aramaic in it as well. So it's three different languages. Uh, the Bible was probably written over a period of about 1,400 years, at least the Old Testament. The New Testament was probably written in less than 50 years, certainly contains the information of only 100 years. The Old Testament covers a period closer to 4,000 years of human history. I, I like breaking the entire Bible up into three basic sections and talk, even though it doesn't 
necessarily highlight chronology. I like saying, well, it takes about 4,500 years of human history. When you begin here at G in Genesis, you have 4,000 years of human history until we get to the last book of uh, Malachi of the Old Testament. And, and then we have a little bit of a break. We have 400 years of break. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that's 400 years that God was silent. Oh, my friends, God was not silent. There were some incredible things in God's providence that he was doing in that 400-year period. But it is accurate to say that it is 400 years of prophetic silence, that is, of no written revelation from God, until we open the book of Matthew. And we go from Matthew all the way to the revelation of John in just less than 100 years. So it's a little bit lopsided. Yes, I do know that I've done that before. Uh, you know that probably when you open the Bible, I'm opening mine back up to Genesis, and I see a, a chapter 1 here. But actually, originally, there were no chapters. There were no those numbers that we get to say, please turn to verse 1 or 2 or 3. They didn't have them there. Now, in the Bible, there's a little over 23,000 verses. Uh, excuse me, that's in the Old Testament alone. In the New Testament, there's just shy of 8,000 verses. Total is somewhere in the neighborhood, do the math, of 31,000 verses in the Bible. And just so you know that I Googled it, the, the, the longest word in the Bible, the longest word in the Bible comes in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1, Mahar Shalahashbaz. I mean, you just really ought to learn that, shouldn't you? I mean, you know, you just ought to learn that so that you can go to people and say, well, you know, I know, I know the longest word in the Bible, Mahar Shalahashbaz. <laughs> I like Hebrew. Uh, maybe you don't know. Let's show them a little Hebrew. How does the Bible begin? Here it is, a lot of squiggly. It looks like it's upside down, doesn't it? But it's not. Originally, the Hebrew didn't have any vowels. And, and so... Uh, a group of people called the Masoretes in the first century came along and said, you know what's happening? We're forgetting how to speak Hebrew. The Hebrew people, the Jewish people, started losing their language. And so the Masoretes came back together and they said, we need to put sounds to these consonants or we'll lose our language. And so what they did is they did what we call pointing. You see these, there's one that looks like a T right there. And so they do the pointing. Uh, another thing about Hebrew is we don't start here and go this way, left to right. We go right to left. That's why the one is down there. Barashith, bara, Elohim, et hashemayim, In the beginning, all one word, he created, namely God, the heavens and the earth. What's next? Ooh, wow, i got to stand back from that. Vaha'aretz, hayata, tohu vabohu. Oh, I like that one. <laughs> tohu vabohu. <laughs> That's pretty good. Tohu vabohu, vachoshik. Great word for darkness. So you, you, you've, you've, maybe you've memorized Genesis and you're starting to say, oh, I wonder what is that? 
Oh, okay. And the earth was formless or without form and void and darkness. Alpine. Alpine. Over the face. Alpine. To home. Varuach. Ruach. Some of you know Ruach. Ruach. The spirit. Breath. The wind. Varuach Elohim. The spirit of God. Merkefet Elpine. Tamayim. And the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. Lastly, I've never done this before. I like the sound of it. Vayomer Elohim, Yahi or Vayaki or. Oh, you heard two word, two times word, word. I wonder what this one is. Verse three. Vayomer Elohim, Yahi or Vayaki or. And God said, "What? Let there be light and." There was light. Isn't that great? It's the beginning of the word of God. Here we are at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we're looking at. It's the very word of God because God spoke it into existence. You know, throughout history, the word of God has gotten beat up quite a bit. Uh, well, you know, that's an ancient book, a bunch of dead people. I don't know why you, pe- you get criticized. Oh, you're one of those, huh? You live your life by this ancient book book i mean can you not think for yourself you know is is god just your crutch is jesus just something that you can lean on because you can't stand on your own two feet i love when people say that to me you know what i say to them you betcha i just yeah you're exactly right that's exactly right through the 20th century the word of god took a, a pretty big pounding The men got together, women, in Chicago in 1978 and formed the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Because people were attacking people about the Bible. Oh, you know, you look at that. You you fundamentalists, you literally, you think that everything in the Bible is literal. You You think God just created the world in seven literal days. You think camels go through the eyes of needles. You, 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 just, you believe all kinds of weird and crazy things. You, you are a literalist. And the uh, folks in Chicago in 1978 got together and said, you know, we're taking a pounding by this because indeed we do believe and we do trust in the inerrancy of the word of God. But they went on to say this about some of the character of it in the statement. Inerrancy does not refer to the blind literal interpretation And that history, quote, must be treated as history. That makes sense. History must be treated as history. Poetry as poetry. Hyperbole and metaphor as hyperbole and metaphor. Generalization and proximation as what they are and so forth. In other words, we apply sound biblical principles as we interpret the word of God. So when somebody says to me, do you take the Bible literally? My response is, I take the literal parts literally. I take the poetic or the figurative parts, poetic and figurative. And then we try and figure out what they mean. So these are some basic parts about what it means to know and to trust the Word of God. I I return to Nancy Piercy here in this introduction. Because Nancy says that once we, when we get to Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in verse 1. It really brings out that which is 
deeply seated in what it means to be a human being. Everybody, not just a believer, everybody, believers and unbelievers. She phrases her worldview and what people think about who they are in four simple questions. Everybody looks around and says, where does all this come from? You know, sometimes I lie on my pillow and think about God and, you know, I'm a pastor, I school and all this stuff, but I'm just a guy. And, and sometimes I'm like, wow, you know, that some things are hard to believe. Some things are hard. I just, and you know, you know what the next thought that comes to me, at least in some cobweb sort of way, I begin to say, now wait a minute. Where'd all this stuff come from? Oh, you want to talk your big bangs and your amoebas and the and and I'm like a three-year-old, yeah. And where'd that come from? Yeah, and uh, where'd that come from? Uh, yeah, okay. So where did that come from? Okay, uh, yeah. And now you got big fifty-cent words that I don't understand. Okay, well I didn't understand that, but where did that come from? And I can be quite annoying. Because I can tell you, we're going to go back to a place where they can't answer. It's right there. God can answer it. In the beginning, God. Where did all this stuff come from? What has happened to make it so wrong? It doesn't really take a sociologist or an anthropologist to look around and to say something someplace went terribly wrong. Where did all this come from? What happened that it went so wrong? And can it be made right? Can it ever be made right? Are we just going to continue to spiral downward and downward? Is there any hope? Can it be made right? I mean, you must ask yourself, why does the person who doesn't know the Lord and doesn't care anything about God, why do they work so hard? Why do they have relationships? Why do they even get up? Because they do hope that there's something better. They do hope that something will come out of their efforts. They do hope. Where does that come from? In the beginning, God. And finally, Nancy says, and where is all this going? Where is all this going? Is there any rhyme or reason to this? Is there any point? Are we going anywhere? I often use this illustration for the person who comes to me and just says, you know, live and let live, case sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, this happens, that happens, you know. That's where we came from, that's where we're going. Really, you know, I mean, when you're dead, you're dead. I say, really? I say, that's, that's amazing. Um, you know, when I look around, I see a lot of things that are, that are pretty orderly fashion. You know, it amazes me that I breathe air. <sighs> What's going on there? Uh, I'm not looking for a physician and medical thing. I'm just, and I don't have to think about it. It keeps going. I go down to the beach. I check on my little Google app, and it tells me what time the tides are coming in and going out. So I know where to build my little sandcastle so the, the tide doesn't come in. I can look at a chart and tell you 
where the tide is going to be next Friday at 10 o'clock in the morning. Wow. There's a lot of order going on there, is there not? Is it something that you can count on in a rhythm? Yes, it changes, but it changes in order. You know, when I was a kid, I used to play with popsicle sticks. I used to play with popsicle sticks. We would stack them up. Huh? Maybe if you were lucky and you had some glue, you could glue it together and it would stay that way. Um, if I walked into a room and I saw a little popsicle stick on, on the table right there, I'd say, wow, somebody made a pretty cool popsicle stick house. That's really great. Somebody made that. I have a question for you. If I had a handful of popsicle sticks right here, say I had 75 popsicle sticks, I'll get a little closer to the table. I know I'm out of light. Don't. And I took those popsicle sticks and I held them out there like that and I dropped them. How many times would I have to drop them in order for them to all land in a nice little popsicle stick house? Come on now, let's give it a try. You all stay. I'll get the popsicle sticks. How many times? Never, right? I tell you, there is much greater chance of those popsicle sticks landing in a formed house than for you or for me to think that by chance this eyeball right here sees you. There's more intricacy in this eyeball right here. And the way that it works than a silly little illustration about popsicle sticks. It is amazing. And you're telling me that nobody designed it. I tell you, I think not. I think that not only did somebody design it, but he designed everything and that he has a plan. Would you look with me at your Bible? I want us to turn to it. I know that was a rather long introduction. I promise to have you out here by on time in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters in the beginning God my question to you and I have three of them about Genesis chapters 1 and 2 so no we're not going to go verse by verse all through but what do they teach us? What does Genesis 1 and teach us? First of all, what does Genesis 1 and, and 2 teach us about God? There it is. In the beginning, God. Well, the first thing that it teaches us about God is that, that God is. In the beginning, God. That God was in the beginning. Furthermore, God was in the beginning and he revealed himself in a story. When somebody comes up to me and asks me, can you tell me what you think about the Bible? I learned it way, way back from Richard Belcher, one of my theology and Bible teachers way back 110 years ago in, in Bible college. And he said, listen, young man, or he's talking to all of us, and he said, you go candidate at a church, and the church is interested in hiring you for youth director, for pastor, whatever it may be. And they sit you down and they say, tell me, what do you think about the Bible? What do you think about the character and the nature of the Bible? That is no time to go, well, uh, 
Well, the Bible is, uh, and from that day to this, I would say to you that God has revealed himself in history and that revelation has been recorded in an inerrant, infallible, verbal, and plenarily inspired word of God, totally authoritative in its original manuscripts. And I can take the next three hours and unpack that for you. But I shan't. The word of God. God has revealed himself in history. Yes, it is a pet peeve. It is one of my soapboxes. God has given us a story. There's the, I, I, I often say the G in Genesis because that's the title of the book, even though it's, it's Latin. The book of Genesis is actually means what Genesis does in Latin. It means beginnings. And it's the beginning of God, not beginning of God, beginning of God's creation. Beginning of God uh, choosing out a people. Beginning of sin. Beginnings, 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 beginnings of generations, all the way to the end in Revelation. The book of Genesis can be divided into eight simple parts. Creation, fall, flood, tower, four events. Creation, fall, flood, and tower, four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's Genesis. You want to memorize Genesis? There it is. Creation, fall, flood, tower, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The book of Genesis. In the beginning, God. God created a story. I would suggest to you, whether it's in a preaching moment or it's in a teaching moment, that you know where you are in God's story. It is God's context. God decided he could have, he could have, he could have put the put it on the back of tree leaves and we all go out each day and pull off a leaf and turn it over and put it in a cup of tea and do something I don't know you know it could be the clouds it could be all kinds he didn't he gave us words to understand and a story to follow and, and, and his point his truth is contained in that story never shall forget told the men yesterday that I went to wrestling camp uh, tried to be a wrestler anyway and went to wrestling camp up in Pennsylvania above Williamsport you know where they play the Little League World Series wrestling camp up there and uh, one morning this guy about my same height so he was short about the same weight at that time was 127 pounds and uh, <clears throat> but he was a gnarly looking dude I mean, he was rough and ruddy. You know, kind of what I would expect Esau to look like. You know what the Bible talks? Redhead, freckles, kind of run hard, put away wet, kind of gritty looking. And he was slender. He was small. He was a wrestler, weight class, just down like that. And he talked with a gruff voice. He talked with a gruff voice like that. He walked out in front of a sea. He walked out in front. He had a little pamphlet, not even this big, fold it in half. Little little pamphlet in his hand, not even this big, fold it in half, but that's okay. He walked out in front of us like that. And he says, gentlemen. You know what this is? You know what this is? You. Do you know what this is? You. Do you know what this is? I know we didn't know what it was. What in the world is the guy doing? You know, creeping me out, actually, is what he's doing. Gentlemen, this is what you think you give your life to, and you don't even know it. And it was the rule book. It was the wrestler's rule book. It was the collegiate wrestling rule book. And you don't even know it. No, I'm not going to do it. You got the point, and I can move on so you can go to lunch. Oh, know the story. I, I want 
to start over there right now and go all the way through it again and again and again like I've done with you a bunch of times. I love it. I love it. I love to go into the kings and the prophets. I love to figure out where they are and what they're doing. I want to know where Jesus was when he pointed his face towards Jerusalem and did not change. I want to know the story. Because then when I want to know my God, I know my God the way he wants me to know him. What does that mean? The way he, he told a story. He did that, and he did that for a purpose. I, I'm going to be a little sarcastic here for just a second. I don't care what that purpose was. I do, but I don't. You know, follow me here. At first, I'm just saying to you, I don't care. If it's the way he wanted to do it, that's all I care about. That's my point. Now, I really do care what it says and why and all that kind of stuff. But even if I didn't, he's Lord, in the beginning, God. And God, what I want to know is whatever you want me to know. And I want to know it the way you want me to know it. In the beginning, God. What does it say about God? It says that God revealed himself in the story, and we should know it, and we should follow it. Number two, and I've got nine other points. What else teaches, teaches about God's redemptive plan? I'm only going to choose one of these. I'm going to go over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, if I can find it fast enough. 2 Timothy over here. There's the first Timothy. See, I'm pretty close. Okay, let me read, because it's not on your screen, I don't believe. I didn't put it there. 2 Timothy chapter 1, still looking for verse 9. There it is. He's talking about it. Therefore, do not be ashamed, it says in verse 8. In, in 9, it says this. Who saved us? That is God. Who saved... By the way, may I? I may not, because I don't have the time. Listen, there's a lot of books. There's a lot of talk. Get this, would you? I like it anyway, and that's why I want it in there. There's a lot of books, a lot of talk, a lot of songs about being Christ-centered. I love it. Not even going to be disagree with it. Christ-centered. This Christ-centered church. Christ-centered gospel. But be careful. It is first and foremost a God-centered gospel. A, in the beginning, God. Now there's no division in the Godhead, so don't throw me out and that sort of thing. But don't overbalance the discussion so much you leave out a God-centered, that's what this text says, who, that is if you back up a couple, gospel by the power of God in verse 8, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose of grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God didn't begin in Genesis 1.1. It says what he did in Genesis 1.1. But God always was. He was eternal. What Genesis 1.1, what Genesis 1 and 2 teaches is that God has always been and that God has an eternal plan. As I journey back to Genesis, I just have to stop off on my way back to Isaiah chapter 46. I love this, so that's why I'm doing it. Back to chapter 46, verses 9 and 10 there. That's interesting, the same verses, I think. 
Wow, yeah. Remember, remember in verse 8, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. That's all of us, right? Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring what? Declaring the end from the beginning. God has a plan and it's always been and it will continue always. God has a plan and he will carry it out. In the beginning, God. Thirdly, what it shows us about God is it teaches us that God is the maker and the maker has full possession of what he's made. The maker has full possession. The picture comes from Jeremiah in chapter 18. Uh, Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house and the potter's on his wheel and he's spinning like this and something comes out and it's not very good so he takes it and he breaks it and he starts all over again and he does it like this. Paul brings it back to mind in Romans chapter 9 when he says, does not the potter have the right over the clay? It's a rhetorical question. The potter has the right over the clay because the potter made it. You are his sheep. And Paul writes and he says, through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been purchased, you have been bought, and you are no longer your own. own what does it teach us about God? It teaches us that God has made everything and he is Lord of all. Secondly, what does it teach us about man? What does it teach about mankind? What does it teach us about ourselves? What does it teach us about mankind? First of all, it teaches us that God made mankind like himself. There's a lot of discussion about image and likeness in Genesis 1 when he gets down there and he made man in his image uh, like himself. And there's a lot of ink spilt there. We're not really sure about what he's trying to describe, the difference going on there. In some way, he's trying to convey the fact that somehow you're like God. Somehow, every person, believer and unbeliever, is like God. If you want a foundation for the sanctity of life, start right there. God has made every life, and he has made every life in some way like himself. How? Well, in Genesis 2.15, now I'm past Isaiah, I've got to get back there. In Genesis 2.15, he, he tells us that we're supposed to go and be fruitful, multiply. In, in some sense, God has created everything, and we get to do it too. We get to create we get, he's creative, and we can be creative too. Oh, no, not the same thing. God has created all things ex nihilo. We like to get our Latin in where we can. It means out of nothing. God, when he said, let there be light, and there was light. Where did the light came, come from? It came from nowhere. It came from nothing. God created it by speaking it into existence. Now, we don't create that way. We don't grow things by going boom, but we plant and we till. In physical ways, we are like God. We're creative. In verse 18 of the same chapter there, 2.18, Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. Not only are we like God in creation, but we're... We are relational. Actually, when we go back up here and we read, finally when he gets down here to making man, he says, let 
us make man in our image. And I believe, like most theologians, that God is talking about the Godhead. And we can see all through Genesis 1 and 2 that the Godhead is present. All of them are there. You already saw where the Spirit was hovering over the world. In the beginning, there was God. Colossians tells us that all things were made through Christ, by Him and for Him. All the people of the Trinity are involved in. There's a relationship in this. In fact, that relationship, as we've already seen, when we were in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, and said that God has done this before the ages began, that is, what has he done? If we went back there and did that passage, we would be talking about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that he did that in ages before time. That is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit joined together in a discussion about what we would do to love human beings. And the Father would give the Son, and the Son would give His own life, and the Spirit would indwell those who believe. And they made this pact together called the covenant of redemption. They had a relationship. And God says it's not good for man to be alone. We are relational, just like God is relational. Thirdly, it comes in verse 25. In verse 25, the end of this passage, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. How are, what does it teach us about man? How are we like God? Well, in my opinion, when you look down at what he is saying, the implication here is, is that there is public harmony. There's public harmony harmony. Now pastor what do you mean by that? Well when it says that they were naked and not ashamed Hebrew word bosh there bosh. They, they were not a public disgrace the, the open disgrace. And I'm going to get off on the, the nakedness and that sort of thing but what I'm simply saying to you is that before the fall the man and the woman had complete understanding of each other and they weren't ashamed why do you bring that up? Because, of course, it's being written after that time. Now being ashamed is understood, and not just in this manner. None of us like to be exposed as a disgrace. We're hearing too much about that in our day. I shan't chase that rabbit either, but nobody wants to be a disgrace. What does it mean to be a disgrace? It means for you to see my fallenness. It means for, for me to be exposed. But if there is no shame, then I can be out there. It's public harmony. I'm okay, you're okay. Not today, but it, before the fall, we were. We walked in the garden together. There weren't any problems. We were, we were open and honest. Fine. It means that there's public harmony that was going on. It, what it teaches us is that when he created, he said, I created very good. It's all okay. There's no problems. There's harmony. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us about man. Well, then what does it teach us, thirdly and finally, very quickly, what does it teach us about why? That's... That's what Nancy Piercy asked in the beginning. I mean, why? What is all this stuff about? Why am I here? What does Genesis 1 and 2 teach me about why? Well, I would suggest to you, first of all, that it teaches us that if we're made in an image, what's an image? 
this is really not a mirror, is it? It's kind of glossy, but it's not. Tin can's closer to that. But what's a mirror? Well, what happens in a mirror? Your reflection. You, you, you see it back. It reflects what? Me. I look at the mirror. It's reflecting. It's not really me, but it's reflecting me. If I'm made in the image of God, what is it I'm supposed to reflect? What's the purpose? What's the design? God has made you and me to reflect him. We're to reflect him. We're to reflect him in such a way that people see God in us. What does it teach us about our design and our purpose that we reflect his image? Even Paul, that may sound a little creepy to you. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, it's like Paul really gets down to the real reflection of Christ. So you say to me, well, okay, I hear you. We're supposed to reflect God. We're, we're even supposed to reflect the Lord Jesus. We're being made to conform to his image. We're supposed to be like him too. And the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.24 that even I, in reflecting it, get to, here's the phrase, fill up the afflictions of Christ. See, because that's what you think about. You think, okay, Jesus, then you automatically go straight to the cross, which is okay, that that's what he did. He died on the cross for you and for me. How do I reflect that? Even the Apostle Paul said, I fill up the sufferings. I fill up the affliction. That doesn't mean that there's something lacking that has to happen. It just means I continue it on. God hasn't saved the last person yet. And God is going to use you, he's going to use me to bring those people to himself. How? By reflecting Christ. How? By filling up the afflictions. Wow. I mean, I'm okay with walking around in a robe and talking. I mean, if a few group of people want to follow me, we want to camp outside and talk about God and stuff like that, I'm okay with that. Do you mean I actually have to reflect Christ to the extent that I suffer? I say to you, that's the greatest of all reflections. The gospel. To reflect his image. Secondly, then, he, he tells us that if we're to go and be fruitful, we're to re reproduce a godly heritage. Reproduce a godly heritage. And when we're talking about the gospel, and we're talking about making disciples and being disciples, I would say that means physically and spiritually. That is, reproduce a godly heritage. Yes, have children. But he doesn't mean just have children. He means see those children growing up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that they become disciples. And for that matter, I think I can extend it to your neighbors and to the people that we see and come in contact with. Go and be fruitful. Bear fruit. I pray for you, the Lord Jesus says, that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. I think that that's producing a godly heritage to continue that in the gospel. I think to reflect and reproduce a godly heritage and then finally to reign over his creation. We are stewards. We're steward of what he has brought. It's not ours. We don't possess it. We've already gone through. He's the maker of everything. He's made everything. He possesses it. He's Lord, but we're stewards. And we need to be good stewards of that. We need to be very good stewards of that. Uh, if I can do this by way of an illustration, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a stretch, but in Romans chapter 2, Paul is talking to the Jews and the Gentiles in the church of Rome. 
And at one point, he's speaking to the Jewish people. And he's saying, you Jewish people, you have the word of God. And, and uh, th that's a wonderful thing. That's a, that's a great thing that you have the word of God. But because of the way you handle, or better yet, <laughs> the way you neglect the word of God, you are putting God to shame among the nations. You are putting God to shame among the nations. Now, Pastor Buzz, what are you talking about? I'm saying that the way we reign over God's earth is a testimony. It is a testimony. I'm not getting off on all the political realms and what you think about ecology and you know the global warming and et cetera, et cetera. I'm talking about your yard. I'm, I'm talking about the, the way that you live your life in the world. He, he rewind all the way back up to the illustration of the lady in the Planned Parenthood and finding out that she lives this duplicitous life. That she goes to church and feels one way, but she can go to a job like that and set aside her Christianity. You know what that's doing? That's putting God to the shame. Oh, wow. Same word back in where the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. How are we reigning over God's earth? So Miss Piercy closes her first chapter in total truth. The Christian message does not begin with accept Christ as Lord. Quotes. The Christian gospel does not begin with accept Christ as your Savior. It begins with in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible teaches that God is the sole source of the entire created order. No other gods compete with him. No natural forces exist on their own. Nothing receives its nature or existence from any other source. The Christian message begins with, in the beginning, God. It's a great place to start. In the garden, walking in full and complete fellowship with God, longing to know what that is like, longing to know what that is like so much that when we go all the way to the other end of the Bible, and there's a new garden that's there, that there's a new garden, and that there's a new heaven and a new earth, we can begin to have a vision of what that's like, a shadow of the reality that's coming. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ in Genesis. Pray with me, would you? God, we love your word. You are so gracious to give it to us. It reflects who you are so that we would reflect who you are. God, we thank you for giving it to us the way that you gave it to us. I pray that we would be good stewards of your word, first of all, that it would transform our lives and that in that transformation we would be accurate, as, at least as your grace extends to us in reflecting you. Lord, help us, we pray, that we begin with this beginning, but that this beginning gives us great hope for the way it ends. And Lord, 
as you permit us, as we take opportunity to be these ambassadors, that we would go and do a little bit of what you've done in Genesis 1 and 2. You have so loved us that you have given your only begotten Son. And then you've given us this ministry of reconciliation to go to our neighbors. And then when we go to our neighbors, we can come back and put a ping pong ball on a scoreboard. And we do it all that you might receive all praise and glory and be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Church. Let's stand together. Let's respond to the Lord right now. I'm going to ask my prayer team to come forward as we sing. Let's respond. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end?